Good morning. My name is Jared Lawson. I'm the pastoral resident here at the Parkway Church. If you have your Bibles, turn to that passage that Dave just read, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. We'll be finishing up chapter four. As you turn there, a little story about me. Uh, When I first became a Christian, I knew instantly I wanted to be in ministry. I couldn't fathom doing anything else, but I didn't know what in ministry, whether it be missions or pastoral ministry, you know, there's tons of different options. So it, I kind of had this roundabout path. Uh, one of the first things that happened to me is I went to this young adults missions organization uh, where very true to form of young adults organizations, I was very uh, pumped, filled with passion, right? Wanted to go, you know, die for Christ if need be. Very passionate about the Lord. And one of the things that came with that passion was this disdain for seminary. Okay, I'm called by God, clearly. I'm gifted by God, clearly. I'm passionate for God, clearly. Who needs seminary? Why, this is just a, wa- just a waste of time. Three and a half, four years just to get a piece of paper on the wall. God's already gifted me. It's the spirit who gives us the power anyway. So I had this massive disdain for seminary and everyone kind of around me in, the, in, in my environment was pumping that same you know, uh, mindset up, right? Seminary is where people with this passion that we're feeling go to grow coal, right? So seminary is useless, uh, don't need it. Now, after that, I went to go intern at a church where I met Jeff and Zach, who really, really encouraged me to go to seminary, okay? So uh, meet them, I'm, I'm seeing their brilliance. I'm like, these are you know, some guys I should maybe follow. And they're like, go to seminary. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. So we're having this battle during my internship. And uh, finally, as they're constantly telling me to go to seminary, I'm not wanting to. They took me out to lunch uh, one day and Jeff in particular said, uh, you're viewing seminary as this hindrance, to your ministry. You're called, you're gifted, and you think it's just this kind of waste of time. We're viewing it as the opposite. We think it's specifically because we think you're called and because we think the Lord has given you some gifting here that we want to maximize that as much as possible. That's why, that's the heart behind why we want you to go to seminary. It's not just because we think it's something everybody must do. It's specifically because we think the Lord is calling you into ministry that you should go. And I said, fine, just because I like you guys, I'll go, I'm gonna hate it. But if I like it, if you're right, I'll come back and I'll work for you for free, right? So that's how I got stuck here uh, at Parkway. But in that lunch, I got to see uh, the heart behind while they were giving this, this encouragement, go to seminary. It wasn't just a law. All of a sudden I got to see why they were championing uh, seminary. And so I mention that because today, as we finish chapter four, Paul is going to stop and he's gonna take the Corinthians out to lunch, if you will. Uh, So remember the context of this whole book. There's massive fighting, massive disunity. Paul's had to get really, really harsh with them. He's gonna continue to be really, really harsh with them. And in this passage, we get this kind of unique look where Paul stops and says, here's why I'm saying these things to you. Here's why I'm saying these things to you. It's because I became your father in Christ Jesus. It's because I love you like children, like my children. He shows his heart behind why he's saying these harsh things. And he's gonna specifically, as a father, say three things to them. He's gonna warn them against sin, call them away from sin. He's gonna give them an example to follow and then he's gonna teach them the true nature of the gospel. Warn them against sin, give them an example to follow and then teach them the true nature of the gospel. So let's pray and then we'll jump right into verse 14. Father, we love you. We thank you that we have your word, that we can know you, that you're not some distant God that uh, requires us to do all these things just to learn who you are. Rather, you're the God that comes down. You're the God that reveals who you are. 
Uh, So we praise you for your word that we uh, get to proclaim it. I pray that the spirit would move in our hearts and that we would be humbled by it and that we would see you as more glorious as a result. I pray in your son's name, amen. Okay, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became a father to you in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there's Paul's heart. I'm not writing to shame you. I'm not trying to put you down. Rather, here's what I'm doing. I'm writing to admonish you. I'm writing to admonish you. We need to spend a little time with this word admonishment because it's one of Paul's favorite words. It's all over uh, his letters. It means uh, to strongly warn, to implore with someone, to almost beg somebody to turn away from sin. It's not just a stop sign saying, you know, danger that way. It's intensely personal. It carries this emotional weight to it, calling someone away from sin. If you were to survey the New Testament, you would see Paul telling pastors, Admonish your people, one of the commands he gives, telling the congregation, admonish one another, admonish those who are idle, call uh, those who are disobedient away from their sin. And even uh, himself, as he's going on his way to Jerusalem in Acts 20, he stops in the church of Ephesus, the church where he spent more time than any other church. And as he's giving this kind of farewell address to the elders there, he says, remember, I did not cease day or night to admonish you with tears. He doesn't say, I didn't stop day or night teaching you. He says, I didn't stop admonishing you. So for Paul, this is key to Christianity. This is a very vital piece of what it means to be a Christian. And so here's the question, why? Why is this so, so, so important to Paul? And the answer is, Paul knows the true nature of sin. Paul knows the true nature of sin. And one of the most dangerous things about sin is sin has a way of blinding you, has a way of intoxicating you as it draws you in to itself. Has a way of looking bright and shiny, like one of those you know, bug zappers, it's just it's flying in, I can't help it, it's so beautiful, and then they you know, die. It draws you in, it blocks everything else out, and what it's actually drawing you into is your own misery and your own death while you think you're pursuing your own happiness. Uh, one of the first superhero movies I remember watching was Batman and Robin, let me uh, give a bit more detail since there's a billion of them. Uh, with the bad guy, Mr. Freeze, right, as George Clooney and Arnold, you know, Mr. Freeze would say cool things like, you know, someone would be annoying him and he would say, why don't you just chill? And he'd blast them with the ray gun. And as a kid, it's just like, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. And I watched a couple clips because I knew I was going to give this analogy and I thought, this movie is bad. This movie is a bad, bad movie. Acting's really improved in the last 20 years. But the other uh, villain, besides Mr. Freeze, is Poison Ivy, who's a scientist who gets bit by a plant or something. I don't remember. I was like six when I watched it. But Poison Ivy, her, uh, her superpower is she has dust in her palm that she blows uh, in the faces of uh, men, and they fall in love with her. She becomes the object of their affections. Uh, she can't, they can't think of anything else but her. Right? Everything else is blocked out and they're drawn in. But if they were to ever actually have her, her kiss kills you. And this happens to Batman and Robin. They breathe in the dust and they're failing missions. Their partnership is being ripped apart because they're obsessed with her. They're fighting over who she loves more, things like that. And they're being drawn in, not realizing that if they were to actually get the object of their affections, it would kill them. It's ripping apart their lives. And if they were ever to actually get it, it would be the end of their lives. And that is exactly what sin does. It blinds you. Everything else becomes mute. Anyone trying to speak sense becomes foolish because you are pursuing this thing that you think gives you your ultimate happiness. But if you were to have it, it would lead to your death. 
How does Genesis 3 describe Eve looking at the fruit as she has it? Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband. Eve knows. It's not like God gave them so many rules that she just forgot about this one. This is the only rule in all of paradise, right? They're in paradise. They're riding elephants, doing whatever they were doing uh, pre-Genesis 3. One rule, don't eat of this tree, don't eat of its fruit. She takes the tree, and what is, how does it describe it? She sees that the tree is good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. All of paradise suddenly is blocked out, and she's being drawn in. That's what sin does. The second you think you have what you desire, the second you think you have freedom, you become a slave. Paul knows that is exactly what sin does. Now, what might be a couple examples in our day? Lust, obviously, you know, that might be the one that pops in your mind first. I think another uh, perhaps strange example would be, uh, I would say over the past year and a half, one of the emotions that has characterized us more than anything else would be frustration right, whether it be politically or with the length of the pandemic, right, two weeks turning into a year and a half or something like that. Frustration's fine, it's fine to be frustrated. How many of you have allowed frustration to consume you? And so now by, you're, you're naturally more cynical. You're naturally more jaded. Naturally, you can't think of another side or someone who holds a different view than you without becoming infuriated. You see that? How many of you have been drawn in? Something natural, like frustration, has drawn you in to now you're just a cynical person. It's made its way to the core of you. That's what sin does. It draws you in because it feels good and specifically because Paul knows sin does this. He knows one of the most important things for us is people around us breathing fresh air that can call us away from sin. We need admonishment. You must have people that aren't blinded by that sin to tell you, hey, You're about to walk off a cliff. You must have people around you to call you away from sin, which, by the way, nothing could be more countercultural in our society than the idea of admonishment. We live in uh, the age of the therapeutic, where someone's inner truth is, right, truth, uh, what they feel on the inside. Uh, We have, my wife and I have a son who's one and a half, his name's Harvey. We named him after the hurricane that destroyed Houston. Uh, and he, uh, <laughs> he loves to dance, uh, loves songs, stuff like that. Even like our coffee maker makes like a nice beat as it's steaming the milk. We're real bougie at the Lawson house. We steam our milk, stuff like that. And he'll even go like dance to the beat. Uh, but he loves the movie Moana, or he loves the four songs from Moana. We've never actually seen the movie, but the songs are burned into my brain. Uh, so we'll put it on the TV and he'll dance around. And his favorite one is where they're saying about the island, how the island gives them everything they need, right? Consider the coconuts, consider its trees. Each part of the coconut is all you need. Again, this is, what I, this is my mind when I'm trying to go to sleep at night. It's burned into my brain. Uh, and the center of that song, the dad is, is walking Moana around, showing her the coconuts. And the center, the core part of that song, Moana runs away from her father and her grandma is dancing by the ocean. And the grandma says this, uh, you are your father's daughter, mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And when that voice starts to whisper to follow the farthest star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. Check the lyrics. Every one of those, dead on. <laughs> 
Now, what's that saying, right? Your dad, the authority place of your life, he's great, you know, follow him. But if you feel something on the inside whispering to do something else, you must do it. Why? Not just because it's, you know, what's best for your happiness, it's who you are, right? It's the core of your identity. That's our culture, right? What we feel on the inside, what our heart tells us, that isn't just what's best, what we should do. That is the core of your identity. That's the narrative of our culture. And so to call someone away from that, to admonish someone, to turn away from the truth coming up from the inside isn't just considered oppressive, it's rapidly becoming considered abusive. For you to deny you know, my core identity isn't just you oppressing me, it's you emotionally abusing me. If I were to say, you know, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, you can't just say, okay, that's true for you, I don't have to believe that. You must believe that according to our culture. My truth just became your truth, and if you don't, that's considered abusive. If you try to call me away from that, if you try to admonish me, it's not just oppressive, it's abusive. That's the narrative of our culture, and what are the results of a society without admonishment? The highest depression rates, the highest anxiety rates, some of the highest suicide rates in recent memory. A society without admonishment is destined to crumble is destined to crumble. Now you might say, you know, that's just our ridiculous culture. Okay, well, let me ask you a couple uh, questions. How many of you, when you have an opinion, when you have an idea, and it's challenged by someone who thinks different than you, rather than engaging in the argument, just run away? Agree to disagree, you know, you have your opinion, I have mine. How many of you do that? How many of you hate discussion? How many of you hate debate? How many of you hate losing sleep at night because someone has challenged one of your views? How many of you run away? How many of you, if you are in sin and a brother or sister comes to you and calls you out of it, say, you don't know my situation. You don't know my upbringing, right? How dare you? Who do you think you are that you would tell me to live a certain way? What are you doing when you do that? You're acting as if truth comes from the inside. Nobody can tell you what to do. You're denying admonishment, saying it's not necessary, right? You've got truth from the inside, which, by the way, if you're a Christian, the only way you can do that is if you ignore literally everything the Bible says about your heart, that it's deceitfully wicked, who can know it? You need admonishment. You must have admonishment. St. Augustine, who knew the doctrine of sin, perhaps better than anybody else in all of church history, wrote uh, The Confessions, one of the most famous books ever written in the Christian church, where he essentially looked over his life in prayer. He kind of reviewed, wrote an autobiography in prayer to the Lord, uh, reviewing uh, everything he was pursuing before he became a Christian. And he says this quote, I was eager for fame and wealth but you rid me of these ambitions. They caused me to suffer the most humiliating difficulties, but the less you allowed me to find pleasure in anything that was not yourself, the greater I know was your goodness to me. Augustine, looking back at his life, I was going after this famous thing, I was going after this pleasure, and every time, Lord, you tore me away from them, it caused me pain. And now I look back and see that was the greatest act of love to me. That was the greatest act of goodness you could have ever done, right? Admonishment, the Lord admonishing him, ripping him away from these things that are vain pursuits was one of the greatest acts of love that God could have done to him. And that's what admonishment is, pulling someone away from the lie of sin and pointing them back to a savior. And it is incredibly, incredibly difficult, which is exactly why those who love you most will do it. What's Paul's point here? I'm admonishing you, why? I'm not just like one of your guides. I am a loving father. 
I became a father to you in Christ Jesus. You are like my beloved children, verse 15. It's incredibly difficult, which is why those who love you most are precisely the people that will do it. It is easy to love someone when they see that you're loving them, okay? This is easy to say. Kids, I love you. Let's go to Disney World. Yay, right? That's easy. Not financially easy, but it's easy. Uh, On Thursdays, I try to have lunch at my house because Thursdays, the trash truck comes by and there's no greater joy in uh, Harvey's life, my son's life, than the trash truck driving down our street. And so we'll be eating and it's silent and he hears it before I do. I don't know how, but he hears it and he looks at me and he sticks both hands in the air because he knows. So I just grab him, we sprint out the door and he watches the trash truck drive by And if the joy of seeing Jesus' face for us Christians is anything like the joy my son gets when he sees a trash truck drive down the street, I mean, we're in for a treat. But that's easy. (laughs) That's easy, right? He knows I love him. It's fun to do it. Here's what's incredibly difficult. Disciplining him out of love. Discipline is a good thing. The Lord disciplines those who he loves. He who spares the rod hates his child. But it is difficult to discipline when they give you that, how could you do this to me, look. Don't you hate me, look. And it's not just parents to kids, it's friend to friend. When you see clearly and your friend can't, and you know you're loving them, but they, they, they see it as hate. That is incredibly, incredibly difficult. But a good friend, a good parent will do it in a heartbeat because you're concerned about what's best for them, not what they think is best for them. They might think the sin is best for them, you know, It's not. That's exactly what Paul's saying. I'm not trying to crush you. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to call you away from the sin that would crush you if you continued in it. I'm acting as a loving father. You're my beloved children. So us reading this 2,000 years later, we, in this time and place, we have more guides than any other time in church history. You are fed narratives through social media or news or whatever constantly. And we also live in a time where we can uniquely surround ourselves only with people that, you know, believe what we believe. Conservatives have their news stations, liberals have their news stations, right? You just hear kind of an echo chamber all the time. Do you have people in your life that are fathers that will look at you when you are intoxicated by sin and do whatever it takes to rip you away? You must, you must, according to Paul, according to the scriptures, if you know anything about your own heart, you have to have sober people around you to pull you away from sin and to point you back to a savior. And if you know anything about the gospel, the incredible thing is that the more sinful you actually realize you are, the more your worship explodes. If I'm just this sinful, I only need Jesus to be that gracious, right? That's not much worship there. If I'm infinitely sinful, all of a sudden my God becomes infinitely merciful, infinitely loving. You see that? It doesn't cause you in shame or cover you in shame. It actually makes your worship explode. We should long for admonishments. That's Paul's first point. As a loving father, he wants to call them away from their sin, point them back to the Savior. So he's, he's called them away from the negative. And next, we'll see in verse 16, he's going to give them the positive. He's going to encourage them to imitate him. Look at verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So he's called them away from sin. Now he's gonna point them. He's called them away from the negative, gonna point them to the positive. Imitate me, he says, which if you know your Bibles, you should be like yellow flag there, okay? I don't know much, 
pretty sure you're not supposed to say imitate me. You're supposed to imitate Jesus. In fact, didn't Paul just spend, you know, three chapters saying, don't say I follow Paul. What's he doing here? Right? Isn't this prideful? Uh, It's not. Uh, First of all, anytime Paul talks about himself in light of the other apostles, he always puts himself at the bottom, right? He even says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but you know, God made me what I am. To understand what Paul means here, we need to understand how Paul views himself. Anytime Paul points to himself, he never, ever highlights his own virtues. He always highlights the reality of the gospel that has transformed his heart. The reality of the gospel in his life. The best example, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. This is Paul talking about himself. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me, right? Anything good in Paul is a result of the gospel transforming his life. So he can say confidently, imitate me. When I'm hated, you know what I do? I forgive because I've been forgiven. When I'm slandered, when I'm reviled, I can bless because I know my Lord blessed me when I reviled him. In fact, in in chapter 11, he's gonna say it much clearer. He's gonna say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's gonna kind of finish his sentence. Uh, To say this another way, Paul knows the gospel is both word and deed. It's not something that can only exist in your head. It's something that is seen with your life. It's something that is seen with uh, the way you live. So uh, the first three words out of my wife Claudia's mouth that I heard before she was my wife, when I met her, this is true, were I hate kids. <laughs> uh, I was in a room, she opened the door, closed the door behind her to the kid that she was babysitting and said, I hate kids. To be fair, the kid was jumping on her laptop at the time. But that was the first uh, amount of information that I took in uh, about this woman that I would one day marry. Now, every single day when I get home from work, the first thing out of her mouth is some story about our two kids. She's showing pictures of our two kids. She's showing videos of our kids, right? Even when we put the kids down, we put you know, the phone up on the TV, we watch videos of the kids after we're exhausted from them, put them down so we can get some us time. How great are our kids, right? Somehow they've borne their way into our brains. Uh, why? She fell in love and it totally transformed her life. What happened over those eight years? I hate kids. I love my kids more than literally anything in the world. She fell in love with them. She was transformed. That's the exact same with the gospel. When you fall in love with Jesus Christ, your life looks like it. It cannot be something that just exists in your head. Your life looks like it. You all of a sudden have new affections. You're incredibly generous. You're much more forgiving. The way you spend your money is radically different. You're not all of a sudden living to build your own kingdom. Rather, you're living to build the kingdom of God. Your life looks radically different when you fall in love with Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. So in in a sense, when he's saying, imitate me, it's actually a, a gracious thing. It's not a prideful thing. He's actually being very gracious to them. He's not just saying, look, follow these rules you know, and get back to me. He's saying, look, here's an example that you can actually follow. Let me show you what it actually looks like to follow Christ. In fact, in verse 17, he takes it one step further. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So he doesn't just say, you know, remember what I was like when I was with you however many years ago. Rather, he says, I'm sending you a living example, I'm sending you Timothy, which shows us, again, Paul's incredibly fatherly heart, his care, 
right? He's not just, he could have just sent them, I guess, a manual, how to not be dumb and how to be smart, how to not be a horrible Christian and to be a good Christian. Here, follow these rules. But he doesn't do that. He says, I'm gonna send you my best. I'm gonna send you my best disciple, my beloved faithful child, Timothy. Uh, If you email Jeff and Jeff can't meet up with you, but he says, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna send Jared. Jared's gonna have coffee with you. You know Jeff loves you, right? He's sending his best. (laughs) Now, if he emails you back and says, I can't meet with you. Uh, Zach Lee, one of our pastors is available. You know, Jeff doesn't care about you very much, okay? So (laughs) that's not true. Uh, But Paul's sending his best, right? He shows his fatherly care. Secondly, it shows us Paul is not concerned with their moralism. Paul is not just concerned with their moral behavior. Moralism is this idea that if we do enough for God, right, he'll bless us. Uh, Paul couldn't be less concerned of that. In fact, focus on our behavior actually works against the gospel. The gospel is we cannot do enough for God. Jesus had to do enough on our behalf. Jesus does not save us because of our works. He saves you in spite of your works. That's the gospel. Paul's not concerned with moralism. He's concerned with them understanding the gospel. So he's, again, sending them a person to show them this is what it looks like to have a living relationship with the living God, which, by the way, is exactly what God does. God doesn't just beam down rules. He sends us a person. He doesn't say, follow these rules and get back to me. He says, know Jesus Christ. Know this person. That's the reality of the gospel. So he's sending Timothy to remind them of his ways. And then I want you to notice this last phrase here. I'm sending you, Timothy, as I teach Uh, I'm sending you, Timothy, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You see how that's kind of redundant? Everywhere in every church. There's a reason for that. One, Paul's probably showing them, you know, I'm not just being harsh to you, Corinthians. I teach this everywhere, right? You're just, you know, my difficult children, right? Uh, Secondly, he's refocusing their perspective. You are a tiny, tiny part of something much, much bigger, First of all, you're just one of several churches I've planted. Second of all, you're Gentiles who have been grafted into the promises given to Israel, given to Abraham thousands of years ago. Third of all, you're a tiny part of the kingdom of God, which doesn't just expand geographically, it expands across time. And you are a part of the very plan of redemption that's been in the mind of the Lord for eternity past before the foundations of the earth were laid. So in in a very loving way saying, you know, get over yourself, okay? You're this tiny piece of something much, much, much bigger, and that's good, right? Christianity didn't start with you. It's not dependent on you. Rather, you have the joy of uh, joining the eternal God as he redeems the world. That is so much infinitely better than you being the point, right? And I think today in, in, you know, low church evangelicalism, us, we have this weird kind of Christianity started with us vibe about us, you know, what happened for the past 2,000 years in the church? Let me summarize it in two words. Who cares, right? Who cares what we've inherited? We're here now. Where's this new, fresh interpretation? You know, who cares of how the church has looked at the scriptures over the past couple thousand years? What's this new, really, you know, what does the Bible really teach about God? And almost always that leads to us putting ourselves right at the center of the story. The Bible is not about us. Salvation isn't ultimately about us. It is about the exaltation and the glory of our Savior. And so it is so much better for us not only to see ourselves rightly, right, that we're not the point, but that he is the point. Not only will you be a bit more sober, a bit more humble, 
when you view yourself, your joy will infinitely uh, skyrocket as now your focus isn't on you, it's on your gracious and loving God who redeemed you. So that's the second thing Paul's gonna show them as a loving father. He's calling them away from sin. He's giving them a loving example. And then the last thing Paul does as a father is he shows them the true nature, shows them the true nature of the gospel. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So again, remember the context of the church. There's all this division within uh, the Corinthian church. People saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ, I follow Peter. I'm a member of the, the Paul party, the Peter party. Uh, and so there's apparently this group within uh, the church that are eloquent speakers and they're actually speaking against Paul. They're kind of demeaning his authority. Uh, and so, you know, they're kind of thinking, what's Paul gonna do? He's not here. He's over in Ephesus. You can't just get on a plane. There's no cell phones. It's gonna take him a long time to even get a letter here. Let's make fun of Paul. Let's diminish Paul all we want, right? We've all experienced this. It's easy to gossip about somebody when they're not in the room. And then they walk into the room and you do that weird, hey man, you know, straighten up thing. Like Tim, Tim, let's be honest, he's a bit strangely hairy. You know, if I'm Jacob, he's Esau, you know what I mean? Like that beard, if you look in the back, there's like a bird's nest back there. And then Tim walks into the room, you're like, Tim's great, he smells like roses. Yeah, he's, he's perfectly clean, right? We've all experienced that. That's kind of what's going on here. Paul's saying, some of you are arrogant as if I'm not gonna walk in the room. I am coming, if the Lord wills, gives a nice little clarifier. I am coming to you and when I do, I'm gonna set things right. I'm gonna set things right. Particularly what I'm gonna do is really discuss what is the true nature of the kingdom? What is the true nature of the gospel? And he says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eloquent speech, but power. I don't care about seeing these guys uh, speech gift. I wanna see the power in their lives. What does that mean? At first glance, uh, at least what I historically used to think it meant, I don't know if it's because of my charismatic background or whatever, I used to think it was, you know, preaching versus miracles. Now, I don't care about eloquent speech, this, so eloquent. Uh, I care about seeing the miracles, right? Which, if that's what Paul meant, it would be very, very, very random. It's almost certainly not what Paul means. But uh, if you remember the context, what have we been talking about for this whole first four chapters? The eloquent wisdom of the world versus the power of God. Paul's been beating that drum over and over and over again. The Corinthians obsessed with this eloquent wisdom of the world and rejecting the power of God. And so what Paul's saying here is we have this group within the church that are impressing the church with their speaking gifts. They're relevant, right? They're relatable, all the things we love. Uh, You know, they're engaging, all these different things. But they're preaching false doctrine. They're preaching bad messages, which by the way, False teachers are dangerous because they're good speakers. You do realize that? One of the reasons why the New Testament is gonna warn over and over again against false teachers, against you know, false best-selling books, things like that, is because those people are good speakers. What matters isn't, isn't the gifting. What matters is the, what are they actually communicating? What is the message that they're giving? Every heretic is a good speaker. That's why they have a massive, massive following. And even the idea behind eloquent speech is most of the time it tickles our itching ears, right? It's what we wanna hear already. 
when you go into a Christian bookstore and you look at the top 10 best-selling books, there's a reason why it's your best life now, 10 steps to becoming a millionaire with God. You know, they have the with God at the end, so it seems Christian, right? Why is that? Because people want their best life now and want to become a millionaire. I could write a book called God Wants You to Do Whatever You Want, and it would, be, it would fly off the shelves. Why? Because you already want to do whatever you want. And I could just say, hey, God's sanctioned this, right? That's, that's the nature of eloquent speech is that it's something that we already want to hear, right? Popular pastors, big churches, typically, not always, but typically aren't that great. Why? Because the gospel at its very nature offends and transforms. The gospel offends you. It has to. If you're born into sin, If no one does good, no, not one, the gospel has to offend you to say you can't do it on your own. You must have a savior to do what you can't. That is offensive. The gospel offends and it also transforms. It transforms you. So uh, anybody who knows me uh, knows I'm a bit emotionally wired. Uh, I'm I'm what Zach calls not a real man. Uh, So uh, hi, (laughs) I, uh, I just, you know, all my sorrows I get out from the stage. Uh, so uh, when I was growing up as a you know, hopeless romantic kind of guy that sneaks into Matthew McConaughey rom-com with his mom, uh, I had this list of one day when I you know, get married and I have the perfect wife, she's gonna be great, she's gonna be beautiful, she's gonna be funny, she's gonna be you know, easy to talk to, low maintenance, all those different things. So I had this list that I carried around in my mind for years as I'm just looking for my you know, how to lose a guy in 10 days girl or whatever. Uh, And then I meet Claudia. And what I realized as I fall in love with Claudia and I marry Claudia isn't, you know, my list is too high of a bar. I found the next best thing. Here's what I realized. This list in my head is a joke. It's a joke. Why? Because I already assumed I've arrived. I know what's best. That list riddled with my own faults riddled with my own imperfections. That list, if it were a woman, could never change me, could never challenge me, could never call me to something higher, could never point me to the Lord. Why? It's riddled with my own faults, riddled with my own imperfections. And many of us, when we think about God and the gospel, do the exact same thing. What does a good God look like? What does good news look like? And we create a God kind of made in our own image. Right, God is loving, what do we mean by that? God will give you the desires of your heart. Not, God is so loving that he'll break your hand if you're holding on to sin. And what we don't realize a lot of the time is we create a God and create a gospel riddled with our own imperfections. Whereas Paul would say, when you encounter the living God, when you encounter the true gospel, the God who is infinitely perfect, the God who is infinitely just, infinitely merciful, truly loving, he'll change you. He'll change you. He has to. He has to. That God will transform you. That's the power Paul is talking about. I want to see lives changed by the power of the gospel. I don't care about speaking gift. I don't care about these skills that you're displaying. I care about the transformed lives of the gospel. I want to see people who realize they can't save themselves and they need a savior. And when those people see that Jesus Christ carries the burden that's on your back, all of a sudden you're free with a hope that death can't touch, you have a rest that all the anxieties of the world can't quench, and you have a joy that the best the world has to offer can't come close to. That's the power that Paul wants to see. That's the transformation he wants to see. Those who live by the power of Jesus and their lives look like it. They look like people who have been 
transformed. And then the last thing he says, verse 21, how would you like me to be when I show up? I love this. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So Paul this is very, very fatherly. He's like, look, I'm showing up. There's nothing you can do about that. But here's the good news for you. It's up to you what I'm like when I show up. I could show up with a rod, bad for you, or I could be you know, loving, gentleness, very fatherlike. You know, a good parent isn't just a strict disciplinarian. Uh, they'll take their kid aside and be like, look, I would love to have fun with you all the time if you obey me. You know, if you disobey me, I love you enough to discipline you, right? That's very fatherly. Paul is uh, doing this here. Uh, he's giving them that choice. It's all a matter of if they repent or not. If you repent, I'm showing up with love. I'm being gentle. If you don't, Showing up with a rod. I read one commentator that <laughs> said this. I <laughs> thought this was so funny. A rod could be used for a number of things. Uh, it could be, you know, an aid for walking. It could be used for hurting animals. Or it could be used for beating people. I was like, whoa. <laughs> one of those three is a real hard left turn. Uh, Paul's probably not literally going to, you know, beat them with a rod. He's probably saying, I'm going to have to get even more stern, you know, to shake you out of your sin. I'm going to do whatever it takes to pull you away from sin because I love you. It's your choice of what that love looks like, rod or uh, gentleness. When I was a kid and I first saw the United States seal, eagle, e pluribus unum, you know, olive branch and, and arrows in, in the talon, talon eagle, uh, hand, eagle hand, foot. Uh, I don't know much about eagles. Uh, I was with my grandfather and I said, what does this mean, grandpa? And I don't think this is correct, but it's what he said to me and it works for this analogy. He said, uh, son, this is America. And we're letting all the other nations know you have two choices. We could either show you peace or we could fight you. It's up to you, right? That's kind of what Paul's saying here. I don't know if that's right, but that's what Paul's saying here. <laughs> it's up to you. you know, repentance is, is the defining factor. And so that's how he ends his letter. Right? A loving father doing what's best for them regardless of what they say or of what they, how they view it. He's gonna do what's best. He calls them away from sin, gives them an example to follow and then teaches them the true nature of the gospel. And Paul here, being a father, uh, he's speaking from uh, something he knows very dearly. One of the main themes in Paul's letters is that Jesus Christ in coming to the world, the word taking on flesh, brings us to the ultimate father. That you and I were created for fellowship, created for communion with the father, but like Eve, we were enticed away blinded by sin, and we're separated from our Father forever until the Father sends his only Son, sends Jesus Christ, the only person, the only person that was never drawn in to the allure of sin, the only one to actually resist the intoxication of sin, yet he let sin crush him so that you and I could be free. And he brings us back to the ultimate Father, puts the spirit within us that we might cry, Abba, Father, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. First John 3, 1. Jesus Christ has brought us to the ultimate Father that we would call the judge of the universe, not just a just judge, but our Father. And like Paul, Jesus is coming again one day and those who have acted arrogantly as though he's not coming, those who have trusted in their own works for salvation, will receive the eternal rod of God's wrath. But those that have trusted on him, those who know him, those who have been redeemed by him will receive nothing but the gentleness and love and spend eternal communion with him. Let's pray. 
Father, we love you. We thank you that this is uh, the reality, that the gospel isn't just a pipe dream. It is uh, the, the good news that when we try our best and fail over and over and over and over again, that is not the end of the story. You sent your son to succeed on our behalf and you give us the blessings of your son as a result. We thank you for him. We thank you uh, that we can proclaim your word here. We pray that you would change our hearts, that we would be sober, that we wouldn't be drawn into sin, that you would surround us with people who aren't blinded by sin, that can call us away, that this church here would do that, would be the body to one another, would call each other away from sin, point to the example of Jesus Christ, that we would forgive because we've been forgiven, that we would be gracious because we've been shown grace and mercy, that we would be a generous people, that we would be a people marked by the reality of the gospel. Only your spirit can do that. Only your spirit can change hearts. So we pray that he would. I pray that you would do that in our hearts, Lord Jesus. In your son's name, amen.